Good morning, Jim. Good morning, John. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. This is podcast number six in our podcast titled Apocalypse is Coming. And today we want to talk about how to interpret prophecy, such books as the book of Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah of the Old Testament. And so our podcast is devoted to how do we do biblical interpretation, especially of these prophetic portions, even apocalyptic portions? Is it important to know how to interpret the Bible correctly? Well, I would think so. In fact, uh, this topic is probably more basic to uh, many other topics we'll be discussing on this podcast, because everything that we want to say regarding apocalypse is coming is based in the Bible. And to know how to interpret those passages and texts correctly is basic to a proper understanding of what the apocalypse means and how it is coming and so forth. So very crucial topic. It is a large topic. Uh, interpretation has uh, consumed many books written about it in the past. But today we want to focus more particularly on how to interpret prophecy and apocalypse. Uh, you know, John, I think that Many people do not read the book of Revelation or Daniel and other passages like that because they are fearful of not being able to interpret the text. And it is true that Apocalypse has special attributes, special features belonging to it that other portions of the Bible do not have. And we'll look at those in a little while, uh, symbolism and things like that. But because of uh, that kind of uh, character, people stay away from even reading the Apocalypse and other books. The Apocalypse, of course, refers to the book of Revelation. So I would say that the very first step in interpreting the Bible and Apocalypse is simply to read it. Uh, it is not something mysterious or the meaning hidden from uh, the average person, but it is uh, possible to understand it, and we begin by reading it. Well, uh, one of the very first questions we want to deal with is uh, how do these principles uh, for interpreting uh, the apocalypse differ from other literature? Uh, how does interpreting the Bible differ from uh, interpreting uh, other books that we read? And I think, John, you could have a comment about that. Well, uh, frankly, <laughs> this is so basic, I, I think it escapes uh, all too many people. We read the Bible basically like we would read anything else, like we would read our newspaper, like we would read uh, the instructions on how to put together a, a pressure washer or this or that. Probably the only thing that might be accepted would be uh, all of the legalese that's in some sort of a, a contract. Uh, that might be a little mysterious to most of us, but by and large, the Bible was not written uh, with experts and uh, technicians and theologians in mind. It was written for uh, the everyday uh, Joe or Sally that's walking down the street who uh, wishes to express their faith in God and in his scriptures. So we read it just like we would read a letter, and so we would not be uh, at all surprised in conversation or in reading something from a friend if it had a, a symbol in it or a, a figurative use uh, of a word or a phrase. Uh, we just read normally. 
Now, it presupposes, of course, that we bring some basic familiarity what, with, uh, with the scriptures, and that comes over time. But uh, that's, that's the same with anything that we might read uh, as we were growing up in our own educational history. Uh, it's all based on stuff that we have accumulated beforehand. And we treat it uh, pretty much as, as every day. Yes, I think that's a great uh, comparison. We read the Bible in a sense, just like we'd read the newspaper uh, or a, a news magazine, uh, taking the words in their normal plain sense, not looking for some kind of hidden message behind the words, although that may take place on occasion. But usually that's uh, uh, signified, uh, telegraphed ahead of time anyway. You know, uh, you know, the history of interpretation is very interesting because the wonderful thing that we enjoy today, what we're going to talk about in a moment, uh, namely uh, the grammatical, historical, contextual uh, interpretation. All three of those terms are very important before the word interpretation. But we'll get to that in a minute. But our listeners should remember that uh, the wonderful luxury we have of reading the Bible in the plain, normal sense of terms and so forth was not the way the Bible was read and understood for most, most of church history. We go back to the time of the 4th and 5th century when there grew a leading consensus in the majority of the church that the Bible has multiple meanings. So not only does it have a literal or normal sense meaning for the word, but there's an allegorical sense a moral sense, and even a heavenly sense to the terms. And in fact, it became somewhat standard for interpreters, and these were usually the priests and uh, leaders of churches rather than the laity. Uh, they insisted that we could find four meanings in virtually every word of the Bible, uh, whether it was literal and then beyond that, the moral, <clears throat> heavenly, and other meanings. <clears throat> and that sense of uh, approaching the Bible in that way, prevailed for a thousand years or more. And it wasn't until the Reformation that we had a return to the plain, normal sense of the meaning of the text. Um, Calvin, and, Calvin and Luther and some of those church uh, reformers like that returned us to the literal approach to the scriptures. The Reformation then took us back uh, to the way the scriptures were written and how the early church first understood it what again we'll call the grammatical, historical, and contextual interpretation. So we live today in the luxury of having uh, the church return to the normal sense of how to interpret its words. And we're not uh, saddled with trying to figure out some spiritual meanings for every term and uh, other meanings beyond that. So let's talk about uh, these three terms, the grammatical, historical, uh, and contextual interpretation. Uh, basically, grammatical means we interpret the scriptures uh, according to the grammar involved, uh, the kind of verbs or nouns and so forth. We separate those out and we interpret them accordingly uh, as any other book would be treated according to the grammatical rules. The second term, historical, refers that we take uh, the meaning of words as they are found in their historical setting. For the Bible, that means we don't come to the Bible with 20th century definition of terms, but we take up what was found at the time of the, the time when the Bible was written, what did the mean, what did the words mean in their time historically? 
And then thirdly, contextual. Uh, we take the meaning of a term as found in the New Testament or Old Testament according to its context. The immediate context is the sentence in which it occurs, then the paragraph, then the chapter of the book, then the whole book, and then uh, the whole Old Testament and New Testament, and then the whole Bible. So there are various layers of context, and we're not really finished with our attempt to try to understand the meaning of a term until we consider the entire context. That's very important because many people will take words, for example, out of the Sermon on the Mount. For example, let's say, uh, you shall not kill. Uh, uh, and uh, if you have uh, evil thoughts about a person, Jesus said that's moral equivalent of murder. Well, we don't take all those statements and simply apply them to government also, and therefore we should not have a death penalty or something else. We should not go to war. Uh, the entire context of the Bible showed that that would be extending this principle way too far. And so we take the context of uh, the Sermon on the Mount and place it within the larger context of the New Testament. What else does Jesus say? What else does Paul say, John say, and so forth? And then we look at the rest of the whole Bible to finally determine well, what are the limitations to Jesus' words? John, what are some illustrations that you've thought about in regards to uh, these three levels? Well, I was thinking uh, when, it, when it comes to the grammatical things, we discussed one in our most recent podcast uh, where uh, there's some critical verses out of Titus, the second chapter, that speak of Jesus Christ as our God and Savior and speaking uh, grammatically there of one single person, uh, not two. And uh, of course, there's grammatical things that attend uh, also to Jesus' divinity in the first uh, chapter of John, and they're kind of technical, but I, it, it's, it's <laughs> I get it to this point when it comes to grammar. We are not afraid to communicate with one another in plain English. God is the greatest communicator of all and speaks to all people and will see to it that his scriptures have the capacity uh, to communicate to us if we just read them normally. Uh, second thing, uh, some of the illustrations that might apply to a historical thing. You, you go to the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew, the book of Hebrews speaks about a, a tremendous um, uh, display of the superiority of, of Christ over all sorts of things in the Old Testament. But when the writer to the book of Hebrews speaks about those things, his roots go back to what those kinds of things regarding the sacrifices and the priesthood and Melchizedek and all of that stuff and how it's... Um, exposed and, and displayed in the Old Testament. So there's a, there's a historical thing. And then the contextual thing is, uh, I, I think the greatest illustration is the one that we have directly at hand here in this series of podcasts. God speaks of the coming days of judgment, not just in the book of Revelation, back in Zechariah and in Daniel and in uh, snippets in, in all of the other prophets, uh, in Joel and, and other kinds of places. And so what we're determining here when we talk about uh, the context 
is what does the Bible say in other locations in various books about this same issue? And we mold them all together and uh, associate them together. And uh, it's really quite surprising uh, how um, consistent we can come, uh, how consistent uh, our opinions will be and our viewpoints and interpretations will be with others when we apply them all. Yes, I think of uh, other examples, and uh, particularly in the book I've written on the apocalypse and uh, Daniel and the second coming of Christ and the Antichrist and so forth. And I'll say more about that in coming podcasts. Uh, but for example, in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter uh, nine, uh, we are told about uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel uh, that are going to be uh, coming yet in the future of Israel. And there's a lot of contesting about those 70 weeks. Are they literal uh, weeks of just seven days? That doesn't seem to fit. And so as elsewhere, we find the, uh, seven, the 70 weeks stand for 70 years uh, times seven and therefore 490 years. So the, the definition of week uh, needs to be understood in light of uh, the context and uh, what is being prophesied about the future. It really covers uh, the first and the second coming of Christ. Uh, in the context of chapter nine, Daniel had been reading Jeremiah the prophet who prophesied that uh, there would be 70 years of captivity. And now Daniel is told there's going to be 70 times seven years of persecution and suffering and in the future of Israel. So we go from understanding the word as a literal uh, idea of years to a multiplication of years. And so uh, principles of interpretation are involved to uh, understand what that's all about. I think of another term, uh, the kingdom which is widely disputed among Christians as to what does that mean? Uh, well, it would seem like we ought to go back to the Bible to clearly understand from the Old Testament that kingdom referred to at least three things, the person of the king, the territory, and then the authority that he exercised. So when Jesus and John the Baptist come proclaiming in the New Testament, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, only one of those uh, elements is present, and that is the king himself, the Lord Jesus. He does not yet have a territory over which he rules, and he doesn't rule by kingly authority. But that is one day coming. But it's interesting that a large section of Christendom take it that all three things are present, and therefore the territory is spiritualized to mean not really physical uh, territory, but uh, a spiritual people. And then his authority is also exercised in a spiritual way, although not literally or physically. So that is basic. Uh, principles of, of interpretation are basic to understanding what does the kingdom mean? So we'll get into some more of that in future podcasts. Um, let, let's look at some principles of interpretation. John, I have uh, given a list of these, as you know. And uh, I'd like to just quickly go through those as we see them uh, listed there. Uh, and I think these will prove helpful to our people. And again, I would start with the basic, most uh, fundamental idea, and that is read the text uh, rather than leave it to somebody else to tell you what it means or to have an authority declare to you what it means. Uh, begin yourself by reading the text, I say to all of our listeners. 
So the number one point, and we can go quickly through these, uh, we ought to follow, first of all, the customary usage, usage of language. And we've been talking about that in the sense of the grammar, the history, and the context that are involved. Uh, secondly, I have here interpret Christologically. That is, look for the Lord Jesus Christ as the central thought and idea of all of the text, whether the Old Testament or the New. You know, Jesus himself had something to say about that. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus with two other disciples, he said uh, to those two disciples, uh, search the scriptures for they testify of me, he said, and beginning with Moses and the prophets and all of the writings, he showed to them the things concerning himself. He is basically saying, look for me in the Old Testament in all of his three major divisions, because I am there. And we all often discover him by means of typology. You mentioned a little while ago, John, the word Melchizedek, the person of Melchizedek, discussed in Hebrews 7. Well, Melchizedek occurs for the first time in Genesis 14. And uh, it is clear that he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 7 goes into quite a bit of detail uh, on that approach. So we look for Christ. Uh, I think of, let's say, the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and so forth. Uh, initially, that passage was uh, dealing with elements in Ahaz's own royal court, and that a young woman would give birth to a son, and this would be significant as a sign to how God was going to deliver Judah from the encroaching Assyrian. But uh, that prophecy, that statement, was not exhausted by the immediate uh, events, but goes beyond. And when it is time for Jesus Christ to be incarnate, to be born of the Virgin Mary, uh, the angel Gabriel quotes this passage that, uh, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so this means that some passages in the text have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment or a double fulfillment, something like that. So uh, we interpret the Bible Christologically, we, we make him central to the entire scriptures. Thirdly, we interpret according to the analogy of faith. That is uh, what Christians have always believed, and we want to stay in harmony with that. If we come up with some radically different interpretation that the church has rejected, we probably are wrong in that regard. Uh, you want to take up a couple more for us there? Well, there's one called the progress of revelation. You know, not all great theological themes uh, occur full-blown right from the beginning pages of Scripture. Uh, there are certain types of things that are, are brought out uh, over a period of time. Of course, the classic illustration is the church. You don't find the church um, lit, uh, spoken of specifically in the Old Testament. Now, there are things that uh, lead up to the church, uh, but they are all wrapped up into the anticipation of Messiah. But the actual formation of the church is left, and, and the revelation of the church as the body of Christ is left for the New Testament. And, and you, could, you could say that uh, regarding prophecy, uh, we find, as I mentioned, uh, snippets of prophetic things about the day of the Lord or the end times in, in many of the prophets. 
but it was given specifically in the Old Testament to Daniel and to Zechariah to speak about the end times more explicitly. But none of those compare to the dramatic uh, and explicit uh, presentation of the end times as it's uh, expressed in the book of Revelation and secondarily in some of the things that Peter uh, has to say about it. Uh, so that's, that's the uh, progress of Revelation. And important with that is the observation of time relationships and the perspective of prophecy. Then uh, we yep. need to determine whether a passage is predictive or didactic. Jim, what's a good uh, two-cent word for didactic? That sounds a little technical to most people. Yes, well, we come under that principle to decide if the passage is predicting something in the future or simply didactic or teaching something about the present. Uh, and that, let's say, concerns all kinds of uh, prophetic portions of the Old Testament and even in the New. Uh, so is the uh, let's say even the whole book of Revelation, there are views that come to the book of Revelation and approach it as simply not predicting anything, but teaching us about the conflict between good and evil. And they take the whole book as simply only that and having no futurist interpretation. Right. Uh, there's uh, also the principle, I'm going down, not on down now through a few others, John. Uh, number six is to choose the simplest alternative among uh, various ways of interpretation. Probably the simplest is the uh, best. Number seven, recognize the kingdom as the central message of the Bible is both present we believe, but not also altogether here present. And the kingdom has been therefore inaugurated, but not fulfilled. Uh, apply the biblical worldview of reality. What constitutes uh, uh, the unseen reality versus the historical or present reality that we all live in? Uh, knowing the difference between those two things and then how to actualize God's uh, essential reality or what is truly basic to his nature and purpose uh, into our present daily experience. Uh, number nine, to search for the existential level of meaning and the essential level of meaning. So again, we could appeal to the example of Melchizedek. Uh, he was a real historical person in the Old Testament, and that's uh, the historical reality, but he had far deeper meaning or a greater meaning in the sense of the fact that he stood for and typified the person of Christ. And that was his more essential or true identity known to God and now to us as revealed. Uh, determine in, in number 10, determine where symbolism comes from. Uh, when we approach the book of Revelation, filled with all kinds of symbols, and we'll talk further about that in a minute, uh, we need to understand, well, uh, if John talks about a beast or if he talks about uh, a horn and other things like that or, or creatures, we, we discover that he's not creating these for the first time, but we find them already prophesied and indicated in the passages of Daniel. And therefore we go back to Daniel and we uh, find out what did the uh, symbol mean there? What did those animals mean in those contexts of Daniel? And therefore we carry those meanings over to the New Testament in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is heavily dependent upon the Old Testament. It is said that every other verse is an allusion to or a quote of the Old Testament. And so uh, we would find the key to unlocking the treasures of the book of Revelation in the Old Testament, primarily in Daniel. Uh, 
So uh, I think the last point is how do I actualize and how do I, how do I apply scripture in my daily life? How do I make it a real possession in my experience now? And that should always be the goal. It is one thing to uh, determine the meaning of the text within the text and what it means for the text and for the broader understanding of the church, we might say, whether my local church or the universal church, but it's chiefly important for me to apply the text in my own personal life so that I am transformed in studying and reading the word uh, by my own uh, diligent uh, daily devotional reading of the scriptures. Would you have a comment about that, John? Well, I would. And, and of course, I always uh, tend to go back to what Peter had to uh, say about things in the end time, a little bit farther on in the end time, because uh, much of this is uh, post-millennial. But he said, uh, thinking about the day of the Lord, since uh, all these things are to be, to be destroyed, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, his book was uh, essentially on a little different subject, but the title of uh, Francis Schaeffer's arguably most famous book is How Should We Then Live? And that is a great phrase to apply to biblical prophecy and its uh, practicality for us. It ought to spur us to uh, proper godly behavior in the present time uh, or as... Uh, Peter would say, looking for, not only anticipating, but hastening, but hurrying along, if you will, uh, the coming day of God. And uh, that's what we're all about. Yes, that's a very crucial point, John. I appreciate your making that uh, those statements. Uh, in the time that remains, I want to draw our listeners' attention to the very important distinction we want to make in how you interpret the book of Revelation and other prophecies. You know, uh, Revelation is unique in all the world's literature, even within the Bible, or participates in three different kinds of literary forms or types. Uh, one is obviously a prophecy, and in the very first uh, chapter, we're told that this is a book of prophecy. We're told the same thing at the end. But it, it is also apocalypse. And apocalypse is characterized uh, by a lot of symbolism, by spiritual journeys, by visions. And all of those things are found in the book of uh, Revelation. And it's interesting that in the very first three verses, we are told that this prophecy is, it has been signified by God through the interpreting angel to John, who is to pass it on to the churches. So that word signified means symbolized. So there are that, that's a key indicator that much of the book is filled with symbolism, and that's the way that God is communicating prophecy in, in this wonderful book. And yet this book takes uh, partakes of another element of uh, or kind of literature, and that is epistle uh, or letter form. At the very beginning, John identifies himself as the author. He indicates who the recipients are, and then he concludes by talking about uh, a farewell and a benediction at the end. So uh, the revelation is an epistle, it is uh, prophecy, and it is also apocalypse. And all three uh, kinds of literature are bound up in that book. You know, as we come then to uh, a final uh, topic of discussion, let's consider how people approach the book of Revelation and other prophecy in the Old and New Testament. And that is uh, basically along two major 
different approaches. Uh, the first one we could call the literal approach, taking the words in their normal, everyday, plain sense. And the other approach is the figurative approach, or sometimes called spiritual or allegorical. And strangely, as it seems to me, much of the church is characterized by a figurative approach to these prophetic portions rather than a literal approach. Uh, in the early church, this started around the 5th century and carried on through the Middle Ages. And even during the time of the Reformation, the major reformers did not depart from this kind of approach to uh, prophecy and apocalypse. But the, but the conclusions of what happens when you approach the Revelation this way are really startling. Oh, yes. For example, uh, I've, I've con constructed a list of things that happen if you do not want to take... Uh, the literal approach to prophecy, it means that uh, you end up finding major things in the book as only figurative or spiritual or allegorical. And so as we think about the various topics coming up in uh, prophecy and uh, apocalypse, such as in the book of Revelation, the figurative approach means that there is no special tribulation coming. There is really no antichrist because he is uh, existing all during this age as those who would oppose Christ. Uh, there is no future fifth kingdom that Daniel prophesies about that is com uh, comprised of ten toes and ten horns, namely ten nations that are coming in the future. Uh, there is no uh, resurrection of the tribulations uh, saints. Uh, there is no rapture uh, catching away believers prior to the great tribulation. There's no second coming of Christ in power and glory. Mm. In fact, uh, John, people uh, take Jesus' return as being simply uh, something that moves gradually from the present age into the eternal age. Isn't that correct? Well, yeah, that's, that's correct. But I always say, you know, how's that working out? It doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be being fulfilled. You know, if, 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 if we're becoming, the world is becoming more and more attuned to God uh, is that particular type of uh, interpretive uh, theory uh, is, is spoken of, and, and that is definitely not happening. Yeah, and perhaps the key uh, issue here involved is that there's no millennial reign of Christ coming on this earth. So what we're really addressing here are the two major approaches to end-time events. One is called premillennial, and the other is amillennial. Pre means that Jesus will come back before his reign on earth for an extended time, probably a thousand years, in which there will be unprecedented peace. Satan will be bound. Evil will be put aside. The lion and the lamb, as it were, from the Old Testament will lie down together and so forth. Amillennialists say there is no future reign of Christ on earth. Uh, he is reigning now. Gradually his reigning is increasing. The power of the gospel is bringing more and more people into salvation or into the kingdom. Uh, Satan is bound by the preaching of the gospel and so forth. So there are two major approaches, the pre-mill and the amill. And the pre-mill is distinguished by its taking the prophecies of scripture in their literal uh, sense. Amillennialism takes it in its figurative sense, some kind of spiritualizing of the text. And the consequence of these two approaches is astounding and has repercussions for what we believe about future events. A major issue involved here is that there's no future for Israel in the amillennial view. 
There's no future for uh, uh, national Israel. There's no sense of their need to go back to the land, of a temple being rebuilt, and so forth. Uh, in those seven years, there will be no uh, covenant made with by the Antichrist with Israel, which he will break in the middle of the seven, 70th week or the seven years. And on and on, the con consequences go as people would interpret the book in a, an amillennial way. So, John, you and I are futurists. We believe that the revelation is predicting actual events and that these things are yet to be fulfilled in the course of history at the end of time. We've done a podcast on the end times, and we're talking now about those very events that take place at that uh, time, and we think that these are all going to be literally fulfilled. Uh, any final comments, John, as we conclude this podcast? Not, we've really covered a lot, and it's uh, thick as thieves, but I think it's uh, very helpful to understand uh, that we're not dealing with unusual complexity here. Once again, God is the master communicator and has intended for the saints to be reading the revelation, not avoiding it. Yes. Uh, we believe that uh, the premillennial approach to scripture is the same approach that Jesus uses, Paul, John, and the rest of the New Testament authors, and as John especially writes in the book of Revelation. We believe that we're interpreting the Bible the way the writers of scripture themselves interpreted it as they look back at Daniel and other prophetic and apocalyptic portions of the Old Testament. Well, thanks, John, for reminding us that it is the most simple thing for us to begin the process of interpretation by simply reading the text. And that's what we would encourage all of our listeners to do and to read these great, significant passages from the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. Thanks for joining me today, John. Well, thanks, Jim. I hope you have a great day and to all our listeners out there as well. Thank you, John. Bye now. Bye-bye.